brief comment before this episode of Inspired by Yarra gets underway. And that is to note that this conversation was recorded well before COVID-19 was impacting our community, our nation, (laughs) and indeed, our world. But we still believe that the information shared in this conversation is relevant and helpful. And so we wanted to bring it to you, despite the current challenges that we're all experiencing. In fact, given the call for physical distancing that we're hearing and adhering to right now, I believe that it emphasises all the more the need for social connection. And so with that in mind, I encourage you to consider sharing this episode and others from our growing library of conversations with Yarra Old Grammarians here at Inspired by Yarra. Take care, look after one another, enjoy this conversation, and now on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Inspired by Yarra. This is a podcast created to enhance, connect and inspire the Yarra Valley Grammar community and beyond. So wherever you're listening from today, I want to say thank you to you. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for coming in here and being inspired. My name is Paul Joy and once again, delighted to present to you another conversation with a Yarra old grammarian, a yog. We track some of their memories here at school and how that has impacted their life today. And today I want to share with you a conversation that I had with Steve McCracken from the class of 1994. A fascinating, well-educated, thoughtful young man who has gone on to be a leader of men and women in a fairly unique situation and an opportunity right at his doorstep to become the commander, the commanding officer of HMAS Stalwart, which is currently uh, a ship being built uh, overseas that will then come over. And when it comes here to Australia in WA, he will take charge. We have a fascinating conversation about his memories of time here at school and some of the challenges that he faced and how he turned those with persistence into an opportunity for lifelong learning. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Steve McCracken. I'm going to begin by just asking him what it was like when he started back as a year five young lad. Enjoy the conversation. Yeah, I definitely remember uh, junior school. It was a bit daunting when I first got there. Um, I grew up in the eastern suburbs, further east out towards Warburton, Lodging Place, and came from a small school. So Yarra Valley was an exceptionally large school when I first got there. So I did find it a little bit daunting, but I think I found the most uh, fun or the best times to generally be out on a sports field of some description. So um, at that time, I was um, heavily into cricket, playing several matches on a weekend, training. I think that's, if my memory serves me correctly, it was um, through um, Mr Ponsford and I think Mr Emmett was the principal back then, um, who was an inspiring um, principal, uh, led from the front and was involved in literally everything. And uh, uh, they're probably some of the first memories I've got of, uh, of being at school at Yarra Valley, mainly the, the, uh, the sheer size and the number of people. Fantastic. And can you recall what were the playing conditions like, particularly when it was a cricket field? Were you kind of 
traipsing in the mud or was it pretty pretty clear cl- clear cut and clean and neat? Uh, look, I do remember that the fields used to be um, outstanding from what I remember. I grew up playing cricket on uh, cow paddocks and um, dodging divots and uh, dodging horse poo and whatever else there was. So um, when you get to Yarra Valley, it's, it's like making it to the MCG a little bit. Um, but in the winter, I do recall it being um, very wet, very muddy, um, obviously not so much for the cricket, but definitely uh, for the winter sports and um, uh, often finding myself um, having to come back up to dry off um, during a, a lunchtime play session on the um, down on the sports fields and being um, mud all down one side or, or all on your knees or something like that. So um, they were pretty wet, um, particularly in the winter, but also in the summer they were fantastic and a great place to play. And it is amazing how our groundsmen are able to to allow us to do both and uh, have fun in whatever conditions we're out there. And I'm pleased to hear that you didn't allow a little bit of mud to stop you at lunch times either. I think that was literally par for the course during the winter times. It was if you weren't muddy, you probably actually weren't out playing. So, um, look, I mean, I wasn't... Uh, I wasn't the, the guy that focused too much on his work. I, it wasn't my strong suit, but I really did enjoy the, I really did enjoy the sports part of the school, and it's it's something that um, does st- stand out in my mind from the time that I was there, right from the almost the very first day to the very last day, being involved in sport. And if I recall correctly, I think it was compulsory actually, throughout the time. So, um, it's it really is a something that I find is to be a real strength of the school, the compulsory sport. And it's something that I was used to then um, later in life following school as I, as, um, as I moved, moved on from school. Yeah, look, today students have more of an option, a, a choice, but I think it's certainly strongly encouraged that they participate in something active and it's, you know, the benefits of team sport and uh, contributing to the greater good of your school community, but also just the personal benefit of health and fitness and activity. It, it's all good. Yeah, uh, like I mean, team sport to me is one of the one of the crucial things in life. Doesn't matter what kind of sport it is, you can play in a team sport of some description or turn an individual sport into a team sport. It's I think it's crucial for developing so many qualities and values that uh, we as a, a general group of people hold very dear. And I do, I do particularly and. I actually expect that of um, uh, of my kids now. Um, it's one of the rules I generally have is to, to play some sort of team sport at, at, at all times whenever they can. So I think there's just so many benefits for their growth in it. So on reflection, did you continue to play sport all the way through and, and was cricket your thing uh, in terms of, you know, moving into secondary school? Was there a particular moment that you remember, a, a classic catch or were you a, were you a batsman and you uh, were able to, to raise the bat acknowledging the crowd because you, uh, I don't know, hit the biggest six you've ever hit or maybe you made a significant uh, run tally? Uh, look, it's oh, a good question. I don't recall anything too significant, but cricket was the, the real mainstay of the sport that I played at school and as I played as a kid. Um, I guess one of my uh, long-lasting memories will be of the uh, the cricket tour that the um, the team did to the UK. I think it was in 93 or maybe 94. I can't remember exactly now, but uh, that was an unbelievable experience, not just in the actual going away of itself, but getting to know the team, being part of a team, doing the preparations beforehand, whether it be participating in fundraising or um, uh, helping 
helping get things ready was a great experience. And then to actually be able to go over to the UK and um, participate as we did and play, uh, I think it was probably a, uh, eight or ten games maybe over a, a couple of three-week period was just it, – it, it was excellent. It's the, it's the stuff that dreams are made of and it's um, something that stuck, stuck with me uh, and will stay with me for the rest of my life. It, it's a, uh, a a distant cry from the cricket fields of launching place and that area around there. Um, and, and as you said, and I can just imagine dodging cow pats and, uh, and, and probably some horse droppings as well along the way and avoiding divots. Tell me, though, how, tell me about the, the travel from home to school. Were you on a bus? Did you get a lift with parents? Did you jump on your bike? And to be a fair bike ride. But, you know, how, how was the travel? How did you kind of negotiate that? Uh, it's, good. it's a good question. Um, Paul, it was actually the probably one of the reasons why um, we moved from living in Launching Place um, to we then lived in Park Orchards until I finished living at home essentially and finished school. Um, it was because the time on the bus was such a long time. It was essentially about an hour's bus ride each way from Launching Place, which um, started to take its toll by the end of a week. So um, one of the things we did was move house as a family. Um, which still meant a bus ride, but it was nowhere near the same duration as um, I was doing from Launching Place. And um, interestingly, it's something that I now take into account for um, kids of my own um, as we uh, try and navigate the ways of bus rides or um, uh, being dropped off in a car or whatever it might be, whether it can be can be managed on the day. So um, that was definitely an experience that, uh, that also stuck with me. Um, and it's something that now influences me today as well. Because back in those days, you didn't have great podcasts like Inspired by Yarra <laughs> to be able to listen to along the way, did you? That's right. That would have been a, uh, a great way to take up some of the time to be able to listen to a podcast. <laughs> so so it sounds like you enjoyed the the experiences of school, the social part of school, even the sporting part of school and the, the sense of being part of something bigger. You mentioned that perhaps the academic side of things wasn't really your thing, wasn't a strength, but if we were to find you in a classroom where you were enjoying yourself, which subject or which kind of classroom might that have been? Like were you maths or science or English or drama? Were you a musician? What sort of subject area can you tell us about? Uh, I was. My preference was towards the maths and the science side of the house, um, the, the logic and uh, is the sort of thing that resonates with me. Um, did have the opportunity of drama, um, and I think is it the Rocker Stedford participated in that one year, um, and it was fantastic to participate in it. But it's not something that is natural for me. It's uh, it was enjoyable. Um, I would never see myself being um, very good at it. Um, although I did enjoy it whilst I participated in it, but I wasn't. Uh, uh, wasn't to be found too often doing drama classes or being very good at English or those sort of things. Although the irony is that since then, um, my uh, um, post-school um, studies have been more along the social sciences. So interestingly, how things have changed. So at some point you experienced the idea that perhaps there is a, a different way of looking at things and, and it made more sense or it, it kind of caught fire in you in somewhere deep inside of you to pursue a particular stream. And so when leaving Yarra, what was next? Where did you go to next? Um, in so far as deciding on where I went, I, I, or the courses that I did, 
um, I was more focused on the maths and the sciences to keep my options open um, as I didn't mm-hmm. really know what I wanted to do. Um, for a while, I was very interested in um, joining the Defence Force, but it was mainly from a perspective of the fact that I could travel, uh, I would get a degree and I would get paid straight away. Um, so that drew me towards it in the first instance, but still not knowing what I wanted to study. Um, when you actually joined, when I actually then joined up uh, to the Navy, I then got essentially channeled, for want of a better term, towards um, uh, an arts degree, um, and I majored in politics. Which, in in the long run, looking back, it's it's quite useful and it helps with regards to the international studies, but also the international relations that you develop and the participation that you have um, across the globe. Um, and it's also then led to further studies um, in uh, strategy and military studies as well along the way. But it was mainly the the subjects that I did at school kept options open, and then things started to narrow as as the uh, as the path I took made things a bit more clearer to what I needed to do. It it does sound like there was some wisdom there in your thinking about keeping options open as long as you could. And then it also does make sense that as you find those areas or you discover those areas that you are interested in, then all of a sudden, yes, you're happy to pursue further study. I, I, I like the I like the story that says I'm not necessarily academic, I'm not loving my time in the classroom while you're at school, and yet you came to discover the value of learning and I would say a lifelong learner once you realise what you want to learn about and then, you you know, it, for applicable to your career, it's been important to keep on learning. Look, absolutely. You, you can't stop learning um, and I think if, if you do, you'll start to regress in some way, shape or form and someone will pick up and go past you. So um, it's now become... Not a, it's, it's far less of a chore than it used to be when you're at school. I found learning to be more of a chore. Uh, I always remember saying that I would prefer to do an extra hour at school than do homework. I, I just despised it. It's, I, I was not a naturally uh, academically gifted person. had to work very hard at whatever I got um, and much preferred the sports field to um, the pen and paper just because it, was, it came more naturally and I, I enjoyed it that much more. But insofar as... Um, uh, the, the learning, t- keeping the options open just seemed logical. Um, it seemed to make sense at the time and it also then gave me more time to make a decision later on and that's generally how I've gone and done things. Tried not, If I don't have to make a decision right there and then, then, well, don't pigeonhole yourself to something if you don't need to. Um, and when you need to make a decision, you've at least got a bunch of information or as much information as you can to make the best decision you can. And we're about to step towards uh, a bit more of your career, but it seems to me that in your role, and particularly if I say with a focus on navigation, you want to be getting as much information as you can and then making choices or decisions based on that information. What's your role at the moment or perhaps what are part, some of the pathways or the steps that you have taken to get into the role that you're in now? So my role at the moment is uh, I'm just about to take command of um, HMAS Stalwart, which is a brand new, still being built, um, logistics replenishment ship um, for the Royal Australian Navy. Um, The path to get there is 
I've taken a fairly, you'd call it a fairly standard path. You mentioned navigation. That's my specialisation within the Navy is navigation. Now, as you get to the level of command, you move past your specialisation and um, you're into people, leading people, managing people and looking after your people. So um, the, the path to get there after school was um, very broadly through the Defence Academy in Canberra. So the, the, the following year I moved, left home and really haven't been back. Um, went to the Defence Academy in Canberra for three years and then commenced my warfare officer training in Sydney, which then took me from Sydney to living in Darwin to living in Western Australia to further courses for professional development to then take roles of greater responsibility, whether it be navigating small ships, big ships, training people, um, living overseas, training people, uh, and then just with each job, with each role, progressively taking more responsibility, progressively taking more study to be able to do it um, until you get to the point where um, if you're lucky, and I'm very privileged to have been selected for command. What a journey. And I wonder in the midst of all that, and you don't have to go into detail, but you mentioned earlier that you were drawn into um, the Defence Force because you like the idea of travel, and it sounds like you've got the chance to do some of that, and you like the idea of uh, being paid all but straight away, and it's I imagine that that's been part of your journey as well. But what sort of the places have, because we don't have to talk detail about the finances, but I am imagining that as commander that's going to be a step up in terms of responsibility but therefore remuneration. But perhaps what's more interesting is the places you've travelled and, dare I say, have you been lost in any of those places? <laughs> uh, travel has been awesome. Um, as far as joining the Navy to travel, um, I've definitely ticked that box. Um, so anywhere from all through Asia, um, several times generally, all through Asia, um, all through Europe, um, all through the Southwest Pacific, um, all around Australia, it's, it's literally has I've definitely ticked the box. So um, it's been amazing some of the places that I've seen, experienced that you would generally or I personally would generally not necessarily go to on a holiday. Um, and that's been awesome. And you get to do um, things there that you, you wouldn't normally get to do unless you were um, participating as I was or, or am. So that's been really good. Um, as far as getting lost in them, yeah, of course. Um, there's some of these places that are so far off the map that it's uh, uh, Google Maps wasn't even around. And so it was a good challenge. And when you have to make uh, sounds and um, actions to order your meal, then, uh, then you know you're off the beaten track. Wow. Um, what would you say is the, if you even knew where you were, the most remote place that you can think of in terms of being off the grid, off the map, that even if you tried to describe somebody would not be able to like is there a place on earth that you've been that you go i don't reckon too many other people have been here uh well you i probably pick some of the uh uh some of the places either if, if you want to stay in australia you pick um some of the places around northwest western australia um right up um in areas 
where you, you, you don't go in anywhere near the water, that's for sure. Um, so there's some places up there, um, whether it be uh, Ashmore Reef, Christmas Island, um, or somewhere right down in southern China. Um, yeah, there's there's loads of places. Um, I'm just trying to rack my brain at the moment to try and think. I think probably the most um, most out of the way in Australia would be uh, Ashmore Reef. Um, well, that being said, for those in the Navy, there's plenty of people that have visited there. Uh, but outside Australia, I think um, visiting the southern seaports of China um, are probably, probably out of the way, but more so because it, it's really hard to communicate. They'll... Um, uh, I don't speak Chinese um, and they don't see um, uh, Western navies too often down there, that's for sure. Steve, you mentioned Ashmore Reef and that, yes, some people within the Navy have visited there, but most of us who are listening to uh, the Inspired by Yarra podcast will never get the chance to go to Ashmore Reef. So tell us, what, what do you see when you get there? What, what is it? Can you describe it? Can you actually see something or is it just the water? So you can actually see Ashmore coming before it gets there. Um, the, the, the reef itself reflects against the clouds and you see green clouds, you know, the green clouds of Ashmore, which is it's quite, quite amazing. Uh, when you get there, there's a few small islets around the reef, a um, couple of palm trees, and there is a lagoon in the middle. Um, it's all um, uh, nature reserve or marine reserve, I should say. And uh, within the area itself, it's as, as I mentioned, protected. And when you get the if you get the opportunity to go in there, there's uh, marine life. Just so much of it, it's unbelievable. It's a fantastic place to visit um, if you have the opportunity. Although that being said, there is literally nothing there <laughs> um, oh. apart from. At the islet, a um, few blades of grass, uh, and you, you you're really not supposed to go anywhere near it because of the the need to conserve it and look after it. So, it's um, uh, it's about off the top of my head, I think it's about 400 miles west of Darwin. That's um, actually closer to Indonesia than it is to Australia. Right. So it's unlikely that uh, we're going to stumble across it when we go out for a paddle. Yeah, and if you have, you're a, you're a long way from home. You've gotten very, very lost. In terms of how much you are allowed to tell us, you're about to be the commanding officer of HMAS Stalwart, which you mentioned is still a craft being built. What's what are some of the you know what what do they put into a brand new ship like this that is at your command? What are you going to be able to do with it? Well, its its role is um, logistic support for the fleet, so. Um, really broadly speaking, uh, the ship is about 180 metres long um, and it's about 20,000 tonnes. So it's it's pretty big and it brings a lot of fuel, a lot of food, a lot of ammunition and it delivers it around to where it needs to go. So, um, But as far as the most important thing to it will be the people that serve within it. That'll be the thing that makes makes the ship a ship. So the, the crew that you're working with, when you say they're the, they're the people who make the ship, the mm-hmm. crew that, you're, that are on board, how many people will you be leading on board and how long a, an appointment or an engagement would there be? Like are you there for a couple of days? Are you there for a week, a month? or ha- What's the sort of deployment look like? 
So you, you get posted, and I'll be posted to the ship for about two years. And so um, generally people are with a ship for, depending on what their role is, anywhere from about 18 months to three years. So I'll be there for two years. Um, the ship's going to be home-ported in Western Australia. So I get to move um, move to Western Australia in a few months. Um, and then when we actually start uh, working on board the ship, because it's still being built in Spain at the moment and it doesn't come out to Australia until later, um, once we actually take possession of the ship itself and start going to sea, we'll be away for anywhere for periods of deployments that can be for, uh, say, a week or two weeks just out to sea, anywhere up to four, four, five, six months being away from home. But you won't generally be at sea for more than about two or three weeks before you have a visit somewhere. Right. And and you've mentioned before that in your experience, in your life at the moment, family is part of your life. What happens to them? I'm imagining that they're not all coming on board with you. Dad's got to go to work. Yeah, it's one of the challenges that uh, service people have, um, particularly in the Navy when you deploy. Um, but we've decided at the moment for now that uh, uh, home is just near Canberra um, and we'll be uh, or I'll be leaving to head west uh, when the time comes, but I'll make regular trips home. Um, we'll bring the family, the rest of the family to the west if and when the opportunity arises. And um, with any luck, I'll be able to bring the ship to the east coast and visit um, Sydney, which is fairly close up the road, and Melbourne, which is not too far down the road. So that might also give them opportunities to come and uh, see where I work. Yeah. And and if, let's imagine for a moment, and I know you haven't even stepped foot onto the boat yet, but where would be one place that you would get to take your family that most of the other crew members wouldn't go? Uh, not really too sure, actually. That's a good question. I've never really thought about it like that. Um, where would I be able to take my family that other crew members wouldn't go? Because you're the you're the most, boss, aren't you? You're you're in charge. Most crew members won't generally spend too much time in my cabin on board the ship. Um, that being said, um, they'll definitely all get in there at some stage um, because um, that's part of um, how I do my job is um, to get to make make sure I get to know each and every each and every one of the people that will be working with me. So um, that's that's probably the best way to answer that. I think is probably my cabin, as they'll probably get more opportunity. Um, whilst they're on board to be in there than others would. But look, in, in all seriousness, um, it's a massive privilege and um, it's something that uh, I'm really looking forward to and looking forward to the uh, opportunity to see how it all goes. So we, on behalf of everybody, the listeners and all of those here at Yarra, we would say congratulations on this appointment. It is a very significant appointment. Thank and you. How how much of it will you be, like, I, I mean, I have this image, a, a historical image, maybe a, a cartoon image or a movie image of, you know, a great big um, steering sh wheel and, you know, you pulling down. And What actual involvement hands-on are you going to have, whether it's in the, you know, in, the, in the, the cabin, the driving seat, or are you standing back? calling commands and making decisions on that? Or are you talking to the crew members out the back and, and somebody else is actually steering the ship? Uh, look, it's a good question. If I can, uh, I think if I can do my job well, 
Um, I'll just be I'll just be there, sort of like being the conductor of an orchestra, um, just leading from the front, but make, having everyone else do their role and do their role the best they can. Then I'll have done my job, I think. And um, as long as I can then bring everyone back safely from wherever it is we go, um, bring them back safely home, then hopefully uh, I'll be successful in uh, in my role as the commanding officer. So it seems to me that the Navy and in a, in a, a sort of a more intimate sense, a, a, a boat, a ship, mm-hmm. is the vessel through which you lead people. You could have done this career in any other pursuit because you're a leader of people and both men and women. So what does it take to be a good leader? Uh, good question. Um, I think, first of all, um, trust. Uh, and I think a good dose of humility and, and respect. I think if you've got those three to begin with, um, you're probably on the way to being a good leader. Although that said, I think it also comes down to the person, the individual, and how they then put all the different attributes together um, of knowing themselves and uh, what makes them tick, how good they are at doing whatever it is they do and eliciting the, the best out of other people and how they go about communicating that. There's just so many attributes of a good leader but it depends on the person as to which attributes they're going to uh, work on and use and then how they then employ them to bring out the best of their people. Um, it's, it, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a fascina- it's a fascinating area to, to, to look into and be part of. I really enjoy it. You're quite enjoy. right. And, and leadership is complex. It's, uh, you know, it's all of those things and, and the diversity of the people you're leading, your yeah. own experience, how you're feeling on the day. You know, there are so many moving parts that actually is what makes it interesting and engaging for you, the leader. Yes, it's, and, and I think if you, um, I remember some, from some previous studies, then if you type in, I think, leadership into Google, I think you get something like eight and a half million hits in like a fifteenth of a second, which just shows just how big, broad and complex it is. Uh, I think that's a great way of describing it, a really complex thing to understand. Yes. And and I wonder, can I just push you a little bit further? You mentioned um, three really critical points. You said trust, humility and respect. And I wonder, can you just dance around that a little bit in regards, is it a two-way thing? Are you trusting yourself or is it your the people who you're leading trusting you or you trusting them? Well, just which in which direction do those trust, humility and respect have to go? Uh, it's, I think they're key ingredients to um, successful leadership. Um, I think it depends on the circumstance and what the challenge is and the people you've got and who they are and what you're trying to achieve. But it's, it's absolutely, I think, a two-way street. Um, you, it's got to be. Um, but you also need to make sure that it's not just when you're in front of the people that you can be trusted. It's not just um, the people that you respect. You've also got to respect your equipment. You've got to respect yourself. You've got to respect your family. You've got to respect 
it's, re it's really everything. If you start with respect, then I don't think you can go too far wrong. And that also leads to leads to being able to be trusted and leads to trusting other people. Um, and humility is just, I think it's quite a difficult thing to grasp. I'm not, definitely not saying that I've got it or um, uh, have it or exude it or anything like that, but I think it's just an important part of being a good leader. Which in itself reflects some of your humility, which is, uh, which is lovely to hear. Um, Steve, you've been generous with your time and just want to see whether I can ask a couple of, um, let's almost call them quick fire questions where I'm going to throw a few at you and uh, some of them will land and you might give us a, a one word or a one sentence reply. Sure. And uh, we'll just see, see where we end up. You ready? Go. B buckle in. What house were you in? Uh, Annals, the, the blue house. Who was the school captain or captains when you were here in the year of 1994? Uh, that's a good question. I can picture them both. Uh, Marnie Carroll, I think. Mm, well done. And Dave, Dave, David, 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 he's a vet, I think. Oh, I hope he's not listening. <laughs> I, feel, <laughs> I feel really bad. I, 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 I must him. admit I have have not done the research, but when I do some closing comments at the end, I will uh, do some research and fill in your answer. Oh. Tell me um, if you had the option between house swimming or house athletics, what would be your preference? Swimming. Do you remember a musical or a drama that you were part of, either on stage or in the audience, that was memorable? Rocker Steadford. Uh, what was the song? Raining Men. Oh, yes, yes. Could you sing a few bars? No. Okay, good answer. <laughs> <laughs> what, was, uh, what would we likely to find if we opened up your lunchbox while you're at school? What would we see for lunch? Uh, I've already eaten it. <laughs> <laughs> so at recess, you've, eat, you've eaten the your lunch lot. by it's recess. <laughs> Done. Uh, probably in your year 12 year or maybe soon after, you drove your first car, maybe you owned your first car. What was your first car? Uh, uh, Hol Holden Calais, a red Holden Calais, VL Calais, I think it is. Red, they went faster. Yeah, especially when it got stolen a few years later. <laughs> Oh, no. Oh, no. Is, is there a, a book or a documentary or a movie that, that has inspired you that you would put down as recommended viewing or recommended reading? Uh, probably my, the most recent book, which um, I would never normally support the All Blacks as a rugby follower, but there's a book called Legacy. By, I think it's written by John Kerr. And it's all about the culture of the All Blacks and maintaining a culture. And it's, uh, it's definitely something that I'm uh, planning to use in developing the culture of the ship that I command soon. Yeah, that's terrific. As, as a, a man in the military, are there routines or rhythms that are part of your everyday, whether it be a, a morning routine or a, a habit that you have adopted that has stood you in good stead? 
Um, look, it's it's for morning routines and routines. Um, look, they vary depending on the job that I'm in, um, but I definitely try and get out and do something each day um, uh, in some sort of exercise, whether it's just a here in Canberra a walk around the lake or um, or a run around the lake or something of that. Um, and at sea, doing exactly the same thing. If you're at sea and you can get out and get some fresh air and run around a flight deck or um, do some do some fitness work on the upper deck of some description and get some fresh air, then um, that's something that I try and hold as a as a routine. Um, but uh, just a couple of minutes to yourself, just to get away from everything else. Have two minutes just to recenter everything. Um, try and bring everything back into line. Try and bring everything back into perspective. And then be able to go and focus on what needs your focus. What's the most important thing after that? That's uh, that's become pretty important of late, um, mainly because generally everything is seen as being crucial. Everything is being seen as being priority number one, even though there's ten priorities. So, if I can find two minutes um, away from everyone else, just recenter my thoughts, and then generally helps me out for the rest of the day. So, generally some fresh air, a little bit of exercise, and two minutes alone to be able to recenter myself is probably some of the things that I try and do. Fantastic. And uh, I think we would all benefit from doing that more regularly. We're speaking with Steve McCracken from the class of 1994, Commander Steve McCracken. Steve, back in the day while you are at school, you would have been aware probably that we have a, a school motto. Do you remember the school motto? And if you do, what does it mean? Uh, the motto was Lavavi... Oculus, oculae. I'm not sure exactly Oculus, the yeah. correct way to pronounce it. Um, and I think from memory it was lift up thine eyes. Very um, good. And uh, what does that mean to you today? I think if I, if, if I cast my mind back, um, I think it was lift up thine eyes to the hills. Was it the, the Dandenongs to the east, I think? And yeah, so a little bit, a little bit of context. Um, we have a school psalm, Psalm one twenty one, um, and it says, "I to the hills will lift my eyes." And okay. from yep. here, from the front steps, from uh, many vantage points on the school property, we look out towards the Yarra Valley, out towards the Dandenongs, and so in that sense, lift up our eyes to the hills. Yeah, I think. Uh, look, it's um, it's still very pertinent. I think to today. I, I think I would look more insofar as lift up thine eyes, like don't. Don't, don't look at just your feet and what's in front of you right now. Lift lift your eyes up and focus on the future, see what else is coming and make sure you're ready for that as well. And it seems to me that you've got uh, a challenging but very exciting future in at least in the, the next couple of years as you uh, take con- command of uh, HMAS Stalwart. And so for that, we again um, congratulate you and dare I say salute you for that terrific achievement. No, Paul, thank you very much. I really do appreciate uh, your uh, your kind words. Thank you. I have one last question, and that is this. What question do you really wish I had asked you? And once you answer that question, can you answer that question? What question would I really want want to be asked? Uh, what What do I see myself doing next? Excellent question. So, Steve, <laughs> what do you see yourself doing next? Well, if I if I was allowed to the liberty of uh, making the assumption that I actually have a 
reasonably successful um, time in my command, uh, then I'll hopefully look forward to um, possibly promotion, maybe um, future success in the Navy. Fantastic. And what does that look like? That's a good question. Um, look, at the moment, um, if I can, as I said, if I can just do a, um, a half-decent job in command, which means making sure that all the people that I have under my command uh, are looked after um, and enjoy their time and have the best time that they can have in their time at sea, in their time as part of the ship's company of Storwood, um, then I'll be pretty happy. Um, and as for what happens after that, um, then I've, ne I've never really thought too much um, about my next job. It generally takes care of itself based on how well you do in the current one and um, keep an open mind and uh, enjoy the ride. Steve McCracken, I think your crew are in for a good ride. I think uh, they will enjoy the time with you and uh, I certainly have today. And uh, so I thank you on behalf of all who listen to Inspired by Yarra. Thank you for not only your commitment to your own career and therefore the safety and security of our nation, but in the way that you serve those who are in your direct command and control, but also on a much bigger picture. Thanks for the work you do in your own home and for the world at large. We salute you, we thank you, and thank you for your time. Thanks for being inspired by Yarra and continue to be an inspiration to us. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Thanks very much. I enjoyed the time. Thank you. Well, isn't he a fascinating character? So much wisdom, so much experience across the world serving his nation. That wraps up another episode of Inspired by Yarra. I hope you found it interesting as we tracked through the trials and challenges and adventures with Steve. As you would becoming increasingly aware, there is a growing library of conversations just like this one available in the community section at our website yvg.vic.edu.au. There are many other interviews and conversations there to help you keep track, to keep up, to learn about what's been going on in the lives of other Yarra Old Grammarians. I think many of whom are living wonderful lives, lives where they are making an impact and definitely being an inspiration. I hope you'll join us in our next episode where we'll sit down again with another Yog to see how they too have been inspired by Yarra. My name's Paul Joy, and on behalf of everyone here at Yarra, and those particularly who are involved in this project, we want to wish you another day of inspiration where you go out there with intentionality in order to make a positive impact in the world around you. you.